we are 24 weeks into our study of the book of Genesis, and we're in chapter 14. There are 50 chapters in Genesis. So for those of you who are skilled at mathematics, you know that we may not finish the book of Genesis this year. This might go into next year. Uh, Abram's nephew, Lot, is a lot of trouble. That's why he's named Lot. A lot of trouble. And we've seen the beginning of that. We're going to see more today. Uh, He pitched his tent too close to Sodom. Now he lives in Sodom. Now he is caught up in a local war. And Abram, because he loves his nephew, Lot, feels a sense of responsibility for him, he gets caught up in the war as well. So there's a lot to talk about this morning in chapter 14. A lot to talk about this morning. Draining relatives, responsibility, Christians and war. And then at the end, in verses 17 through 24, then after this war, Abram meets two kings, one from Jerusalem and one from Sodom and he loves the one and he sort of snubs the other. So we're going to learn a lot more about Abram today. We're going to learn a lot more about his faith today. Therefore, we're going to learn a lot more about our faith and our God. So let's pray. We'll get started. A great and good father in heaven. We are glad to be your children. And we're glad to know that you are our father and not an absentee father. Not a father that abdicates his responsibility or that outsources his responsibility, but a father who takes great responsibility for his children. And thank you, God, for the way you have cared for us and nurtured us and cherished us. Thank you, God, that uh, even in times when we don't feel when we don't feel like you're caring for us, that because of the insight your word gives us, it is perhaps in those times that you are caring for us most greatly. God, that you you allow us to feel certain things and you allow painful circumstances in our life and you allow trials that grieve us, but you do all of this because you have uh, our joy in mind. Always working for our good, God. We're so thankful for that. I don't know how we would handle this life without that truth. God, if there are people, maybe even in this room, if there are people here today who, who do not know joy, God, help them to see that they do not know joy. Uh, help them to see that the, the here today, gone tomorrow sort of happiness it is not real joy and help them to see God today through your word that you have you have rescued them from that in Christ and that you mean for our joy to be full and it'll only be full in you God in our heart is that 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 everyone here today and beyond these walls would have great joy in this life that comes through Christ and our reason for wanting that God And our reason for desiring that 
is because that will make it very clear that you are a great God. And so your glory is our chief desire. We want you to be glorified, God. We want the world, starting with us, we want all to know how great you are, how good you are, how glorious you are, how gracious you are. So move us along a little further today. Move us along through the preaching and through the hearing of your word. We pray this in the perfect name, the name above all names, the name of your son, who is Jesus. Amen. Uh, Two sections today, as you can see, there are two sections today. We've got chapter 14, verses 1 through 16. And then we've got a second pericope, verses 17 through 24. And so we will take them one at a time. And here in this first section, uh, we have the very first war that is recorded in your Bible. The Bible is selected history. So it may not be the first war, probably isn't the first war, but it's the first war that's mentioned in our Bible. And so God wants us to know about this war for a very certain reason. And I I do say war so that we we get that this is not some small conflict. This is not a a small conflict. This is a, a bloody conquest and ensuing war. History and archaeology attest to that. So this is a bloody conquest and this is a bloody war. There may not be a lot of details about it, but it is it is a bloody, bloody war that we're going to read about. So let me read again verses one through twelve and we'll take it a bit at a time. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings, they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlamer, But in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim and Shaveh, Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran and the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, they went out and joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedorlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Emraphal, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went on their way. They took also Lot, the son of Abram's brother, 
who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. I wonder if some of you came this morning just to hear us pronounce (laughs) all of those names. And I'll let you in on a secret. I have absolutely no idea if I pronounced any of them correctly. (laughs) Some of you were really impressed, weren't you? (laughs) What a Hebrew scholar he is. No. You just say him confidently. You just say him confidently and people are amazed. (laughs) No idea if I'm saying those names correctly. Verses, but that's not important. Verses 1 through 9 first. See what we have here. There are nine cities that are involved, nine city states, independent, I almost made up a word, independent and autonomous uh, city states that have their own kings, that have their own armies, that have their own government. And there's nine of them that are involved. There's there's four of them, a confederation of four kings from the east against a confederation of five kings from the south or from the Jordan Valley. And and what we learn is that years ago, years ago, the east defeated the south. And since then, they have ruled over them. So now where we pick it up is that 13 years later, the south cities are uniting in rebellion. Okay, the south city states, they unite in rebellion and they're refusing to pay tribute to their Overlords. So the East had conquered them over a decade ago, and now they're there to pay tribute to them. They're to submit to them. They're under their rulership. And in, in the text we're reading today, those five kings and those city states say enough is enough. And so they are rebelling against them. OK, they're waiting. The, the East is waiting for the check to come in the mail and the check does not come in the mail. What's going on here? So the East doesn't just sit idly by. They launch. This uh, they declare war against the south. And so they march out, they march out and launch an invasion is what we're reading about. Uh, And they are marching south. And what we read is they are annihilating everything in their path. This is how bloody it is. They're annihilating everything in their path. And they meet for for a big battle in the Valley of Siddim. Okay, and in that battle, that's where. The, the, the four kings versus the five kings, they, they, they come together. Four against five. Now, here's where it's, it's good to know, before we even look at further at verses 10 through 12, is that you've got four distant kings who are coming to, to conquer, to make war against five local kings. So the, 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 the locals, these five kings, they have, they have numbers and they have home field advantage. Okay, it's, the, the battle is being fought on their turf. That's a huge advantage, right? They know their homeland. Okay, they know the secrets of their homeland. They know the dangers of their homeland. They know the terrain. They know the territory. And they have greater numbers than the troops that are coming in from the east. So it's kind of surprising the outcome. Because they don't win, right? Let me read verses 10 through 12 again. The valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. Those are tar pits. Okay, they're full of tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. 
so this is kind of funny if you think about it. This is kind of funny because the guys with the home field advantage are the ones that fall into the tar pits. Like you'd think that'd be part of their war strategy. Don't fall in the tar pits. I mean, the general gets them together. Okay, we've got a battle going on here. Now, I want to tell you a very important part of our strategy today, boys. Don't fall into our tar pits because it is super hard to fight when you're in a tar pit as you die. So don't fall into these tar pits. So this is a tough moment for the sodomites. This is, this is pretty embarrassing. This is embarrassing. I mean, they have been whooped on their home turf. The, the underdog wins here. And they take spoils of war. They kidnap a bunch of people. And then what they're going to do after this battle is they just start northward now. They start northward. And, and it's just a, a victory march at this point. Okay, their enemy has their tail between their legs. Okay, they've, they've, they've taken spoils of war. They've kidnapped many of them. They've decimated them. And so now they're just headed back to their homeland and they're marching northward. Now, remember, your Bible is selective history. So it's not a complete book of history, but it gives us some selected pieces of history that God thinks are very important for us to know. And the reason that we're hearing this history is, is given to us in verse 12. They also took Lot. That's why we're learning about this war. Because who was Lot? Lot was the son of Abram's brother. So we're learning about this war because one of the guys that gets kidnapped is is Abram's nephew, Lot, who is a lot of trouble. And so it affects Abram, this man of faith that we are studying. And that's why the author brings this war to mind. Verses 13 through 16. Uh, 13 and 14. Then one, this is what happens next, one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, this is, this is incredible. This is incredible what we read about here next. Now, how does Abram respond? When he heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So let's, let's understand what's happening here. Abram has probably heard about the war that, that is going on. Okay, he's probably heard about the war. I, I assume that he's, he's praying about the war. He's probably praying about his, uh, his nephew Lot, who he knows is caught up in this. But, but he's, he's probably also optimistic because of the whole numbers and, and home field advantage thing. And then he gets this news about the tar pits. And he finds out that, that, that one of the, the, the people that was kidnapped was his nephew Lot. And so as we're going to read on, we see that this was the great mistake of the four kings. I mean, everything would have been fine if they hadn't messed with Abram's family. You might as well kidnap Liam Neeson's daughter. Okay, that's what this is here. This is Abram. 
So when news reaches Abram, what, what does he do? When news reaches him, he summons his 318 trained men and his three pagan neighbors. Okay, these three non-believing neighbors and allies, Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner. And at this point, they are a hundred miles from this Eastern Federation of Kings. They're headed up towards Dan, which is, they're going to have to pursue them a hundred miles. And this is an entire army. But Abram learns that his nephew's been taken, so now he's in the fight. So he gathers up 318 trained men and his, and his neighbors, and they saddle up on horses, and they head out to pursue this foreign army. Now, we've just got to stop for a moment so that we get how we know that Abram is great, right? We know that he's great, but it would be good for us to remember here that Abram is probably about 75 years old. And he hops on a horse and rides into battle with his 318 trained men and his unbelieving neighbors who may not love God, but they're really good at fighting. And he's 75 years old. He doesn't send them. He doesn't sit at home and say, okay, I've prepared you for this. Now, now go out. He, he hops on the horse. I mean, he should be hitting the early bird special at hometown buffet. And instead, he is riding out to battle. And he should be riding on a rascal or, or a lark or one of those motorized grocery carts. And he's on a pony and he saddles up and heads to war. Abram is really, really great. And who does he take him with him? 75-year-old guy on his horse, and he takes specifically these three non-believing friends. So that means he has a good reputation with non-believers. That's important. He has a good reputation with non-believers. These men don't love God, but they love Abram. Maybe they will love God. They don't love God, but they love Abram. That says something about Abram. And Abram is glad to have their help. This is also important. He's glad to have their help. He doesn't say, no, you can't, you can't go with me because you're not Christians. And I don't associate with non-Christians. No, he, he wants whoever's going to help him get the job done. Okay, so he hires the right men for the job. He said, I went to the Sunday school class and I saw the guys teaching in there. And I don't think they're going to do well in this battle. So he goes and finds his three friends and says, how about you guys? And so they, they join forces with him. And then he takes 318 trained men. These are serious men. Numbered very specifically, right? Okay, this is like his, uh, this is a specifically numbered battalion. They're like his, they're like Abram's version of the Navy SEALs. That's what these men are. 318 men trained for battle. So this is like, this is like Leonidas and his 300 Spartans, right? geriatric Leonidas, hip replacement Leonidas here with his 318 trained men heading out to battle. And listen to how it goes, verses 15 and 16. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought brought back his kinsman Lot, Mission accomplished, right? And with his possessions and the women and all the people. So this is a success. So we learn here that Abram is also a strategist. He's a strategist. He's, he's thinking wisely. He, he, what does he do? He divides his forces up. 
Okay, it's a surprise attack. Okay, and he attacks them by night. That is, that is very good tactic. Remember that this army that they're attacking, they're on their victory march home. Okay, they're headed home. They've destroyed everything in their path. They haven't had a lot of opposition at this point. They think that they're long past their very last battle. There's been no disturbances along the way. And so Abram then routes this army. And then when we look at the geography here, he then drives them 100 miles away from where this battle begins. You know you've been whooped. Right? When you're driven 100 miles away from where the battle started. Abram drives them out. So let's stop for a moment and and look at a question that I think comes up here when we're introduced to this very first war in the Bible. The question would be, in the physical and material world, is violence, including war, ever justifiable? That's a question that people ask. It's a question that Christians ask. Well, aren't we to turn the other cheek? So... In the physical and material world, is violence, including war, is it ever justifiable? And I'm asking on purpose in the physical and material world because there should be no disagreement among us regarding the reality of a spiritual war that we're all in the middle of. We are all, as Christians, in the, well, we're just all, whether we realize it or not, we are all in the middle of a spiritual war and it requires us to fight. It requires us to battle as Christians. It requires us to know that there is a war that is going on around us. The kind of war that is much more significant than a physical war because souls are at stake, not bodies. Souls are at stake in this spiritual war. Your soul is at stake and the soul of others is at stake. And that's the kind of spiritual battle that we're in. So among Christians, there should certainly be no spiritual pacifists. That should not exist among Christians. But in the physical and material world, that's what we're asking. In the physical and material world, is violence, including war, ever justifiable? Well, looking at just this text, we could look at others. But looking at just this text, the answer is clearly yes. The answer is clearly yes. Abram was not a pacifist. I think this would be a great discussion in your community groups this week. This would be a great discussion. These are good Questions to ask, right? When should Christians fight? Spiritually, physically. When should Christians fight? How should Christians fight? Should Christians go to war? When should Christians go to war? How should Christians go to war? Those are great, great questions. And let's make three observations looking at that first section in Genesis 14. Just three observations. Number one, Abram fought. That's clear. Abram, he was willing to fight and Abram did fight. And he did not have to fight, right? He didn't get drafted into this. There was... 
He did. He could have turned a blind eye. He could have looked the other way. He could have just left this to someone else. And he could have he could have justified that. Right. Saying, you know what? You know, this isn't my war and I'm going to protect my family. So here we are. We're up in the hills. No one's bothering us. I mean, they're past him now and his family is safe. But if he's going to engage this army, I mean, what's to say that they don't defeat him and then turn around and enslave his family? Right. So you it'd be very easy to justify. Okay, non-involvement. He does not have to fight. He could have said he could have said to Lot, well, that's what you get for pitching your tent so close to Sodom. I think that's what I would have been tempted to say. Well, what do you expect? Okay, I'm not going to be an enabler. I'm not going to you got yourself in this mess lot. You shouldn't have gone over to Sodom, but here you are living in the city. Okay, and and now you're being overthrown and now you're kidnapped. Well, maybe this will be good for you, Lot. As far as I'm concerned, you're just getting what you deserve. Okay, you made your bed and now you got to, I mean, and on and on and on. Abram does not do that. He fights. He doesn't just say this, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. That is a great thing for Christians to say. I'll pray for you. And prayer is the greater work. And prayer is work. And it's important and necessary. But telling somebody you'll pray for them should never mean you're being a passive Christian. It should never mean that you're saying that so that you don't have to do anything else. So Abram could have said that. I'll I'll pray for you, Lot. Our God is great. Our God is big. He can rescue you. I'll pray for you, you who need food or need help, or I'll pray for you, or you can do something. In this case, Abram does something. He fights. He also could have used God's sovereignty to negate his responsibility. People do that a lot. He could have used God's sovereignty to negate his responsibility. How does that look? Well, Well, clearly God allowed this to happen. So clearly it is God's will that Lot be taken into captivity. So clearly I shouldn't do anything to interfere. You see? So God is sovereign. So that means I have no responsibility here. He could have used that excuse. Well, I don't want to interfere with God's will. You ever find yourself doing that? I mean, the the real reason you don't get involved is because you don't want to get involved. But now I've got to justify that. Now I've got to ease my conscience. I feel like I should do something. I don't want to do something. So I need some verses out of context. So that I can feel better about what I'm doing. And Abram could have done that. He could have used some sayings. He could have said, you know what? I want to get involved here. I really do. I really do. But I think it's time I just let go and let God. I think that's what God is calling me to do. But he doesn't do that. Okay, so Abram fought. That's the first observation. Number two, but see this, Abram was prepared to fight. You see that? Abram didn't learn about this fight. I mean, he didn't learn about this fight and then say, what are we going to do? And and then he trained men and then launched the conquest. You see, he had he had them waiting. But Abram is not a man of war. He's a man of peace. There's been no war. There's been no battle. There's been no fighting. You could say he had people probably look at him kind of like building an ark. Why are you doing that? What is the reason for this? I mean, 
He's a Romans 12 guy. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that's what Abram was doing. He's living peaceably with all those around him, had no reason to fear. And yet, what is he what is he doing on the side? He had 300 men he was training. Knowing what? That at some point, he's probably going to have to be involved in a physical fight. And he wants to be ready. He's planning ahead. He's thinking through. 300 highly trained men. What are these men trained to do? They're not trained to uh, negotiate or diplomatize or draft treaties. What are they trained to do? They're trained to kill. These men are trained to kill. They are not good at, at faxing and filing papers. These aren't good with numbers guys. Okay, these are guys in trucks with gun racks, just got out of the NRA meeting, and they're ready to fight. And these are the ones that he handpicks, and he's trained them. So that means that they're making weapons. Or there's no fight. There's no war. He's prepared for a war. They're making weapons. They're learning how to use the weapons. They're thinking through battle scenarios. They're planning out tactics. And there's no fight. But they are ready. That's important to see. He was prepared to fight. And then the third final observation, Abram's fight was sanctioned and blessed by God. So you have a war here, you have a fight here that is clearly sanctioned by God. And it's blessed by God. What's Melchizedek going to tell him in a while in verse 19? You have been blessed by God who delivered your enemies into your hand. In verse 20 of chapter 14, what is God telling Abram? God is telling Abram through his priest Melchizedek that you did the right thing. You did the right thing. Going after Lot. And I blessed you because God honors obedience. Always. God blesses obedience. Always. And God says, so that's why you won. I mean, those 300 guys, those are they are studs. Don't get me wrong. I mean, pretty impressive. And your strategies, very impressive. But the reason you won, God says, was was because of me. So what are some things that we can learn from this? You, you and I, we may not be in a fight, but you should always be ready for a fight. Should always be ready for a fight. And not just ready for a fight that comes to us, but ready to pick a fight. And I'm talking spiritually and physically. Sometimes a, a fight, spiritual or physical, will come to us, will be necessary for us to engage. And sometimes it's necessary to pick a fight. It is. Are you uh, defending the defenseless is the question. Are we ready to defend the defenseless? Uh, men, are you ready to protect your wife? Some of you guys I've talked to in you know, you, you go you go places with your wife and you're you're like this. You got your kids, you got your wife and you're you're watching and you're looking and he looks suspicious and he looks suspicious. And I've got my eye on you and I've got my eye on you. I mean, this is my wife at every park with her kids. Just watching. 
So fathers, husbands, do, do you think like this? Are you ready? Are you, are you prepared for that? Are you, are you waiting for something to happen? And maybe those who are close to you, those who are defenseless, maybe it's your wife, maybe, uh, maybe it's your children, moms or dads, maybe it's your children, maybe it's someone who's handicapped, maybe it's someone who's outnumbered. Are we ready to defend the defenseless? Or are we just waiting for something like that to happen and then we'll try to figure out a plan? Do you, do you know what happens if we're waiting for that to happen and then we try to figure out a plan? Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Spiritually and physically, are we ready to fight? Are we willing to fight? You can imagine the eastern king saying to Abram, hey, our fight is not with you, right? Hey, we don't have problem with you and your Spartans. Our problem is not with you. Our problem was with them. And what is Abram's response? Well, it is now. That's his response, isn't it? You should, have, you should not have messed with my family. I mean, that's clearly what is taking place here. You should not, you, you kidnapped the wrong guy. You should not have taken my nephew. Because what is Abram doing? I am, ta- I'm responsible for him. Abram is the opposite of Cain, right? Who said, I'm not my brother's keeper. Abram's his nephew's keeper. Okay? His dad died. Abram's brother died. He feels responsibility for him. And so he engages in this war with no thought to cost to himself, just sacrificial taking of responsibility and says, this, your, war, your, your beef may not have been with me, but mine is with you because you have someone from my family. And while I have not been given responsibility by God over all of these other people, I am head of this household and I'm here for my nephew. And he goes up against an entire army and just see that God sees that and, and says that is beautiful, that is wonderful, that is righteous, that is good. I'm glad you're fighting. I'm glad you're pursuing them. I'm glad you picked this fight. I'm glad you're in this war. I'm going to bring you the victory. Bless you, Abram. That is a really big deal. There was a time here for Abram to pick a fight. And he picked the fight. I am not saying this. Please hear this. I'm not saying this to try and appeal to some sort of macho instinct. That is not what we're doing here. I'm saying this to all of us, men and women, because passive Christianity is killing Christians. Passive Christianity, spiritually, physically, this let go, let God, no planning, no preparation, not getting in the fight, not getting in the battle not waging war against our great enemy and other enemies and just passively laying down and quoting scriptures out of context to be passive Christians. And we have an example here where Abram had every opportunity to probably be passive. And in most of our churches, we would say that was probably wise, brother. It was good for you to stay in your home. We probably we we probably would have patted him on the back. But here. God presents this example to us. It's an important one. And he goes out and defends his family. Right? It's very clear in the text. Why did Abram? What provoked him? What provoked him? Lot. The kidnapping of his net. He was concerned for Lot. He loves Lot. So faith we see. Abraham's our man of faith, right? Faith does not mean passive cowardice. Does not mean I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to trust God. 
Well, sometimes you, you trusting God causes you to do something. Faith is not a passive cowardice. So should Christians fight? Back to that question. Well, at times, Christians must fight is the answer. At times, Christians must fight. Who will defend the defenseless? Do you know what God's answer? My kids. My boys and girls. My sons and daughters will defend the defenseless. As well, we can learn it is good to have a plan. It is good to have a plan. Abram had a plan. He was prepared. He knew if there was a war, who he was going to take and who he wasn't going to take. And he had them ready. Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Those are both very important. Some people would just say the victory belongs to the Lord. And so I'm not going to I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to trust God. And others will say, well, I'm going to trust God to give me a plan. And I'm going to make a plan. And I'm going to be prepared. And that's what Abram did. The horse is made ready for battle. He didn't just, you know, fly out into battle and say, God will give us the victory. He got the horse ready for battle. Do you see that? The horse was made ready for battle and the victory belonged to the Lord. So it is not luck favors the prepared. It is the Lord favors his prepared ones. He didn't just sit back in his armchair and, and, and proclaim that that was some act of trusting God. He trusted God to give him a plan. Making a plan is not unspiritual. Make a plan, Proverbs 16, and the Lord will direct your steps. He'll change your plan. But that doesn't mean you don't make a plan. Make a plan, the Lord will direct your steps. Pick a major. Right. Plan how to lead your wife and children. Plan out your day with your kids. Plan financially. Planning is good. We see that in Abram. And now the second section, verses 17 through 24. Okay, we see here, here is Abram, a courageous man, a prepared man, and a faithful man, trusting God for the victory. And he meets two kings on his way back home, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. After his return, first let's look at the, the king from Salem, Melchizedek. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek is a very interesting guy and mysterious. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Well, here's what we know about this, this Melchizedek. Well, we'll look at him for a bit. Uh, he's a king. He's a priest. He provides a mysterious meal, sort of familiar to us. Right? Bread and wine. And he pronounces a blessing over Abram. And we learn more about Melchizedek in Psalms, chapter 110, and in the book of Hebrews. Let me read a few of those texts to you. Psalm 110, verse 4, we learn something. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he is not just a priest. He is the head of an order of priests. 
Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6 and, and verse 10. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever. This is Jesus now, Jesus. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that one of the roles of Jesus is he is a priest. He's a mediator between us and God, but he is the priest. He is a high priest, but he comes from a long line of priests. But he doesn't come from the line of priests that starts in the tribe of Levi with Moses' brother Aaron, which doesn't happen for a long time in your Bible, not to the book of Exodus. Jesus is not from that line of priests that you read about in your Old Testament. Jesus is from another order of priests that's right here, Melchizedek's line of priests. That's interesting, interesting stuff. Hebrews chapter 7 For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We know that. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. We know that. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So that's what his name means, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, which means king of peace, which is probably going to be king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And then it says this in Hebrews 7.3. Listen to these words about Melchizedek you thought he was mysterious listen to this he Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the son of God he continues a priest forever that's sort of strange so what do we know when we put these texts together He's a great man. If you read on in Hebrews 7, he's greater than Abraham. And Abram's the great guy in the book of Genesis. Melchizedek is even greater. He brings a meal of bread and wine and he receives an offering from Abram. He's a king. His name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. And he is also a priest. He's a king and a priest. Now, Jesus is the only one in your Bible, the other one in your Bible who is a king and a priest. He's a priest, which means that he's a mediator between man and God. And so God communicates to his people through a guy like Melchizedek. And he uh, mediates between man and and God. He is there to secure peace for the people and atonement for the people working with God and taking the sins of the people to God. But Melchizedek is a priest before there are any priests in your Bible. Again, priests don't show up until Aaron in the book of Exodus. And he's part of another order of priests. And Hebrews 7, right? It's an eternal order of, of priests. So he's a predecessor, we learn, of Jesus Christ. Or a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus was our great high priest from the order of Melchizedek. And he blesses Abram. There's only one other that has blessed Abram at this point. And and who has that been? That's been God. God is the only one who is blessing people like this in the book of Genesis. But here, Melchizedek does this. And then that strange text in chapter 7, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. 
So did, the, did this priest, did this king not have ancestors, is that saying? Or others would say there's just no record of his ancestors. Where did he come from? Where did he learn about God? Right, Abram's the guy that God is dealing with. So where did he learn about God? He knows more about God than Abram, it appears. He's a priest before there are priests. We have what looks like communion here before there is communion. Abram seems to know who he is and recognizes him. And if Melchizedek was greater than Abram, then why wasn't he chosen to be the father of a new nation over Abram? So this is one controversial figure in your Bible, and I unfortunately don't have many answers for you. A very mysterious figure, this Melchizedek. Martin Luther believed that he was Shem, the son of Noah, but Hebrews says that Mel's ancestors were unknown, so that doesn't seem to make sense. Some think that he was an angel, some think that he was, this is very popular, some think he was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but there's some issues with that view as well. I think uh, John Calvin said it best with very little speculation. She's not speculating a lot about who the man is. And this is clear. Melchizedek alone in that land was an upright and sincere cultivator and guardian of religion. That is clear. That is clear. This is a like Abram. This is a man of God, a special man of God, an important man of God who God brings Abram to following his war, following his battle to declare to Abram how pleased God is with him. How pleased God is with him. Well, there's another king who's standing next to this great king. King of the Sodomites. King of Sodom. This doesn't go so well. Verses 21 through 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, Listen to what he he totally snubs him. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. That last verse is important because you see that Abram doesn't hold these non-believers to his standard. Does that what they do? That's their business. It's up to them. I'm not projecting my convictions here on everyone else, but this is what I'm going to do. And he snubs this king of Sodom. Now, when we first read it, we, we may think that, that, that what the king of Sodom is doing, what it might appear that he's doing, is making a generous offer. Where he says, listen, okay, let me let me... Let me make you a deal here. What do you think about this? How about you give me all my people back and you can take all the goods yourself? Well, there was a lot of goods. There was a lot of riches. There was a lot of wealth. So that may appear to be a very generous offer. But here's what you have to remember. This king is in no position to make any deals. Why is that king even here having a conversation with Abram about 
the possessions and the people. Because Abram alone, without his help, you guys fell in your in your own tar pits. You fell in your tar pits. Look, you're in your tar pits. And, and Abram is the one who goes out with his few and mighty men. And he gets all the goods back and he rescues all the people. And so Abram is you know, the express, Abram was holding all the cards here. This king has no cards. And he comes to Abram and is there a single expression of gratitude? Like, thank you. Thank you. I was over trying to help my guys out of the tar pits and I heard that you conquered and here you are and thank you. And what do we owe you and how gracious of you and we are your servants. I mean, there's absolutely no expression of gratitude and nothing spiritual comes to mind at all. That's the difference between the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. He's just paying attention to the physical and the material world. And, and Abram's response to him is he just sort of ignores his request. And it goes the way what you think would be well for the king of Sodom. Because Abram says, you know what? I don't want anything. I don't want the people and I don't want the goods. I don't, you can keep your money. You can keep your possessions. You can keep your goods. I don't want, I don't even want a nickel. If you're the king of Sodom, you're thinking, could this go any better? This is great. And he's going to take everything back to Sodom. And then we're going to read in Genesis just the continual downward spiral of this city of man. What Abram is doing here is Abram is saying, I don't want anyone to get the glory here other than God. I don't want anyone to be able to take any credit. What is Abram thinking? God has told me that he is going to make me a great nation. God has told me I'm going to take possession of this land. God has told me that, that I am going to have many descendants. God has told me that there are going to be riches and there is going to be wealth. God has told me this. And if I let you, if I let you give me a bunch of riches, then that gives you that gives you some power over me and that gives you some hand in this relationship and that provides you with an opportunity to say, when God does grow me as a great nation, to say, well, you know, he wouldn't have been a great nation if we hadn't got him jump started with giving him all of those goods and riches. And so Abram just walks back, he just says, You know what? No, thank you. I don't underestimate how tempting that would have been. How tempting would that have been? I mean, if this is 75-year-old geriatric Abram riding home on his horse and he and, and his troops have just slaughtered this massive army. You think that's a, and now this king greets him and says, you know what, all the spoil that you've recovered, keep it all. You don't think that would have been a temptation? Which one of us as men, as proud men, wouldn't have loved the opportunity to have our praises sung and to have riches be given to us. And which one of us wouldn't have been tempted to totally justify that? Well, I, I did win the war. I mean, God threw me. But it was my work. Don't forget. Wouldn't have happened without us. And he, I mean, this is the great man of faith again. So that, that was not actually the real battle that you read about. All that was leading up to this real battle of faith that is right here when he is tempted to take all the loot. And he says, you know what? I'm good. And no, thank you. I'm going to trust God. A mighty man of faith. In conclusion, I want to say this, because I think that 
there there is a a wonderful picture of the gospel that is being put forth here in chapter 14. And it's the reason that God makes such a big deal over what Abram does here. It's the reason that God through his through his priest from which Christ is going to come. I think it's the reason that God sends this priest to go out and to meet Abram and to confirm that God is with him and God is for him. And this victory belongs to the Lord. Okay, God wants to highlight what Abram did and to affirm what Abram did. And so let's remember what Abram did. Abram went on a rescue mission. Abram went on a rescue mission. Abram took responsibility. He got his hands dirty. He engaged himself in a war that was not his war. And he risked everything. Why? To rescue, to rescue who? To rescue Lot. We're going to keep reading about Lot. This is who he came and rescued. So friends, this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of the gospel. Abram is a picture of Christ. Because what, in essence, did Christ do in coming to earth? Christ came on a rescue mission. Christ came to rescue his people. He came to rescue his family. Now, in this story, we don't like this, but who are we? Don't you want to read it and identify with Abram? That's me. I knew I liked that guy. That is exactly what I would do. This is how we turn our Bible upside down. We read all these great stories and we always think that we're the hero. And that's the picture of us and that's the portrait of us. So be an Abram and be a David and be a Daniel and be a Samson and and, and be these great characters of the Bible. Do you see yourself in them? Look at these mighty men of God just like you. And that is not who we associate with in the Bible is the sinful one, the broken one. In this case, the rescued one. Did Lot deserve to be rescued? Absolutely not. You know what, Lot? That's what you get for pitching your tent so close to Sodom. Christian, are you not so glad that that is not the attitude that the head of your family has taken? That your head, that your representative, Jesus Christ, did not say, that's not my problem. But he took responsibility for his children. And make no mistake, when that baby was born in that manger, the rescuer was being born. The one who would come, who would live, who would suffer, who would die, in the place of his children. Why? So that he could 
scoop them up and rescue them from the enemy and defeat the enemy and then turn around and take them where? Home. Back where they belong. This is what Christ has done. We are blessed like Lot was blessed. We are rescued like Lot was rescued. We are saved like Lot was saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to to feel the weight of this and to know that you have saved us as your people. God, I pray that if there are people here now who do not believe the gospel, that they would know now, Lord, that you have come for them, that you have rescued them, that you have saved them. God, I pray that people now would identify with Lot. I pray that people would see the messes they're in, the, the, the sin that they're in, that they would see their responsibility in this, that they would see their foolishness in this, that they would feel, God, how undeserving we are. We have nothing in and of ourselves to claim as reason why we should be with you in perfect bliss forever. We have nothing in ourselves to claim for that, God. And nothing to justify that. You saving us, you rescuing us makes absolutely no sense. But help us to see, God, not that there's anything great in us, but it's all great in you. That you are a loving God. That you are a great God. That you have come after us. That you have rescued us. That you have saved us. That you have mounted on the horse. That you have gone into the battle. That you have wielded the sword. And when you died on the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ, you rendered the great death blow to our enemy. And we went, God, from being captives to freed men and women. And we are your liberated lots brought back to you. May we in this time of communion then give you all praise, all glory, all honor as the founder and inventor and author and securer of our salvation. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.